Paul's chains advance the gospel. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what will I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. A desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is God's word. Father, we thank you that you're a speaking God, and we thank you that uh, you have words for us to hear tonight, that you do not want us to leave unchanged. And so we pray that you would give us minds that understand what you say through your servant, and we pray that you would change our hearts Uh, by the power of your spirit, as we hear your word. Amen. Amen. Great. Do keep your Bibles open then, or reopen them. Philippians 1, we'll come on to that in a moment. So, the the big topic, as we've seen, uh, is uh, persecution on all the churches around commission. We're looking at persecution today. So, when you get given a topic like persecution, and you think, well, what should I preach on? There there are so many texts in the Bible, old and new. I could have gone to absolutely almost every book of the Bible. This is not a minor topic. I'm going to do Philippians 1. We've just had that read. But the one sort of sentence that I almost want as our banner sentence is from 1 Peter, actually. And it's this phrase here. Look at this uh, sentence. I've got it on the screen there. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The two phrases that stand out to me in that that sentence are this. The first one is, do not be surprised. And the second one is, as if though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised as if something strange is happening to you when you're persecuted. Now, when most Christians speak of persecution, and we've been doing it tonight already, it's absolutely appropriate and right to speak of 
uh, people around the world who are going through terrible times. There's a, if you look at Open Doors, Open Doors is one of these fantastic websites and they send you emails and they tell you all about what's going on in the world for prayer uh, with persecution around the world. And they've got their watch list of the top 50 countries, the, the most difficult countries for Christians and persecution. And it's you know, North Korea and Iraq and Eritrea and Afghanistan and Syria and Pakistan. And it just feels, whilst we pray for these people, it just feels so far away. It's like the other part of the world, doesn't it? I mean, we regularly pray for, I mean, every week we pray for uh, persecuted Christians in one country or other. I don't know if you do that here. I'm sure you do. And it feels like a foreign issue. Persecution is something that happens to people out there. And, and that's right. I mean, it would be, it feels inappropriate for us in some senses to talk about what we go through as persecution because, you know, what they face is persecution. What we face is awkwardness. But I bet you if you spoke to a Chinese Christian who goes to an illegal underground church, they would say to you, oh, but what we face is not persecution compared to our brothers in North Korea. So persecution is something that actually we are all facing. And the danger of divorcing the word from our experience and making it something that happens to other people means that actually we are surprised when it happens. And it is strange to us because it's a foreign problem and not a British problem. And I want to encourage us, I guess the one thing I want to do tonight in this sermon is this, is that no one would leave here surprised as if something strange were happening to them, if and when they are persecuted. And I'm not just meaning today, I'm I'm wanting to train us for the future. Uh, Last uh, year we were looking at 1 Thessalonians in our Bible studies in our home groups. 1 Thessalonians is a fantastic letter, not not least for the context. Because when you read 1 Thessalonians, if you look back in Acts when you get the story of Thessalonica, Paul turns up in Thessalonica and he goes to the synagogue as he does every week and he um, he reasons with the Jews there and the, and the Greeks who are God-fearing Greeks who turn up at the synagogue. And he's trying to convince them from the Bible, look, the, this Jesus, he's your Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting for. And over the course of doing this for a few weeks, people get converted, some of the Jews, some of the Greeks. But only after three weeks, a bunch of the Jews see some of their brothers getting converted. They're stressed about this and worried about this. So they go out into the the marketplace, they round up a mob, they start a riot, and it's chaos. And the Christians are fearing for their lives, there's this mob, they're going to tear them apart. And Paul and his his, uh, friends, they have to run in the middle of the night. He's only been there three weeks. And then he writes this letter to the Thessalonians. Now, what would you expect him to have done? You know, you've, you've left all of a sudden. You weren't expecting it necessarily. And you've only had three weeks. I mean, you've only just started the church. They're just brand new Christians. You've only got to week three of Christianity Explored. You haven't even got to the cross yet. What are you going to, what, what are you going to do? Read this next verse. Just put it up on screen for us. Thank you. He says this, for you know quite well that we are destined for trials. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you, that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. In my time, I've done quite a lot of different evangelistic courses. And I've yet to come across the evangelistic course that by week three has done, you're going to be persecuted. Which doesn't happen in this country. But it did with Paul. 
he kept on telling them. He only had three weeks with them. He kept on telling them, guys, you're going to be persecuted. So am I. And that's exactly what happened. This is what Jesus did in all of his teaching to his apostles. This is what Peter did. This is what Paul did. See, if you want to do a normal, basic Christianity outline, persecution is in the first three weeks. But I think for us, we're surprised by that. We find that strange. Because persecution is something that happens out there and not here. Now, of course, with persecution, you get, you know, you get different persecution in different countries and in different eras of history. Of course you do. And if you were to be brief about it, if there's um, a nation, a nation's culture, how much it fits with the gospel, how much overlap there is, broadly speaking, is how much persecution there'll be. If, if your country or your nation is very like, close to gospel thinking, then the gospel, there'll be less persecution. Whereas if your nation or your generation the people think very, very differently or opposite of the gospel, there's bound to be more persecution, isn't there? So the history of our nation is this, more briefly. Back in the Victorian times, when this church was built, actually, uh, our nation was very much a gospel-centered nation. There'd been a 100 years of revival, and lots and lots and lots of people went to church. And to be a gospel evangelical Christian was something that fit with much of what many people thought. But of course, since that time, there has been a steady decline. And not just a decline, but a rejection of the gospel. And we're still on that decline. We're still in that nation coming away from the gospel, going against it more and more and more and more. And so we need to, we need to reclaim this persecution language for ourselves, not to melodramatize it, not to demean what's happening in other countries, which is far worse than us, but to, so that it's not surprising to us, so it's not strange to us, because that's the direction we're going in, more and more and more and more. So we need to be ready for it. That is what I want to talk about tonight, really. Now, that might happen in one of two different ways. That might happen to us as individuals, or it might happen to us as a church. I mean, as individuals, we might face more and more hostility from friends, from colleagues. It might be more embarrassing. It might affect our careers. It might be serious times of testing in the future where we have to choose between our career and and Christ. More and more, our friends might mock us. Our families might malign us. That will happen more and more as individuals. But the same is also true as a church, of course. I mean, um, those of us in the Church of England, it's not me actually, it's, it's you. <laughs> um, it's, it's getting harder, isn't it? The heat is turning up. And it could well be you guys here at Christchurch Mayfair face a really difficult decision about where you stand. And when, when, to, when to leave, if to leave. Do you lose the building? Do you lose all, all your staff as a result? Does the church fall to pieces? Because of persecution that comes from the inside, from the church. And on that day, if that happens, many of you will want to stand with the church, but there'll be others who think, well, I I don't want any part of this. This is too hateful. This is too hard. I'll go somewhere else. So persecution is something we all need to face up to as individuals and as a collective, as a church. We're going to hang together on the day of trial when it comes. Remember the parable of the sower? Do you remember the parable of the sower? There's uh, four different soils and the word is scattered and it lands on different soils and there's one soil over here that 
rejects it straight away. And there's one soil over here who is the Christian, who's good soil, and it keeps going on forever. But there are, there are two soils in the middle who are Christians who start off but give up. One of them is the weeds, that's the choking of the world and the worries of life and, and stress and anxiety in the world. People get choked, and we all know about that, don't we? But remember the other one was a plant that gave up because of suffering and persecution and trials. And the way Jesus described that plant was like, on the surface, a healthy-looking plant. But underneath the surface, in the heart where you can't see it, it had a shallow root. And the only reason you'd know it had a shallow root is when that storm blew through, that time of trial, that moment of persecution, that's when the plant fell flat. And there's a sense in which you can only know if that root is truly deep when that storm hits. Look, the thing about the the parable of the sower is that Jesus is saying that there will be people, perhaps some of you, who will start brightly and give up the faith. And some of you will give up because of persecution. And so the reason I'm preaching this sermon tonight is this. I don't want it to be you. I don't want you to be surprised as if this is strange because this is normal Christianity. Okay, we're going to look at Philippians, um, Philippians chapter 1. Those of you who come in the morning will have heard Matt preach this last year and done it much better, no doubt, and much more in depth. I'm just going to come at it very quickly from one angle and from this angle of persecution. Paul is writing this letter of Philippians. And one of the things about Philippians, it's very autobiographical. Paul goes on about himself a lot in this letter. And the reason he does that is not because he's full of himself, but because he wants us to be like him. He says it several times. Have a look over at chapter 3. Verse 17. How about this? Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have a model, have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Have you ever felt able or confident to say to other Christians, watch me, be like me? It's very un-English, that, isn't it? It's just too arrogant. But it isn't arrogant if you're following Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and mind and strength. And that's what Paul is doing. And he's doing it publicly because he wants us to be like him. So what we're reading here autobiographically is Paul explicitly showing us what drives his heart and his mind so that we'll be like him. So here's three things we're going to look at. Uh, I think you've got the points. I don't know if you've got the points in your handout. They'll also come up on the screen. We're going to look at three ways in which on our day of persecution, on the day that we might fall, on the day where the plant might hit the ground, because we have to choose between Jesus and ourselves, how are we going to cope? And that's what we're watching or listening to what Paul does. Three different areas in terms of our freedom, in terms of our reputation, and in terms of our very life. So let's do the first one. How do we cope when our freedom is under threat? Okay, I want you to imagine, let's do munger, shall we, for a moment. Happy New Year. I want you to imagine the worst case scenario here at Christchurch Mayfair. This year, a sermon, which is a totally normal sermon that you'd hear any Sunday, uh, gets leaked onto the internet for whatever reason. The wrong person hears it. Um, it goes to the wrong people. And Matt is arrested for what he said, for being a hate speech preacher. 
And of course, the Church of England, because it becomes a bit of a storm, uh, they suspend the church. So the church is closed. You turn up on a Sunday and it's not open. And Matt's in prison. That would be a pretty bad year, I imagine, wouldn't it? I don't know if you've had a year that bad. That would be an awful, awful year, wouldn't it? That would be worst, worst case scenario. The most awful thing that could possibly happen to the church in 2017. And yet, for Paul, that's exactly what's happened. Paul's found himself in prison for hate speech. And as you'd imagine, all the Christians, well, you'd expect all the Christians to be hiding underground, terrified, worried. So this is worst case scenario for Paul. It's actually happened. This is the total disaster, right? Well, actually, no. Have a look at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What? As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So, in fact... We would expect, experience this as a total disaster, worst case scenario. But Paul's going, this is absolutely brilliant from his prison cell. Why is that? Two reasons. First reason is because he's become a really famous prisoner. Everyone knows about my chains for Christ. So he seems what's going on, wherever Paul is, he might be in Rome or somewhere like that, you see. It doesn't matter where he is. But the point is, wherever he is, everyone is talking about the bloke who's been in prison for Jesus. Never heard of this bloke, just Jesus. That's that weird cult, isn't it? I've heard of them. This bloke, oh, he's the one that's in prison. Everyone's talking about it. So here's our worst case scenario. Matt gets locked up in prison. Well, of course, it's a media storm. I mean, it's in all the newspapers uh, Twitter sphere is going absolutely off the charts. Every radio phoning is some bloke phoning up going, yeah, them Christians, they're full of hate. And someone else going, well, I'm not sure if you're really looking. Everyone's talking about it. It's like it's the big news item at the time. It's really exciting for the gospel. Not so much for poor old Matt. Matt's in prison, but he's probably sitting there going, wow, I just had to do one little sermon and look what's happened. The whole country is talking about Jesus and the bloke who's in prison because of Jesus. That's brilliant. That's a lot better than the apathy we have now, isn't it? And then the second reason, actually, rather than the Christians going underground, even though they're actually quite scared, look what happens. Verse 14, most of the brothers and sisters who become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So here you are, well, you can't come to church because it's closed, but people in your office are saying to you, oh, um, yeah, this, this bloke is in prison. It's a big storm. All these Christians there. And you're a Christian, aren't you? Actually, yeah, I go to the church that, uh, that's closed down. And I know Matt, actually. He's a, he's a friend of mine. It's like, really? You know him? Wow, what's he like? He's not a hateful person at all, actually. He's a bloke who talks about love. He talks about, you just don't know. Let me tell you about Jesus. I mean, honestly, it would be a total gift of an evangelistic opportunity. You'll work year after year in the same office looking for a little dry bone of an opportunity and suddenly you'll be talking to everyone about it. It'll be the most evangelistic, fruitful week of your life. But we just said a minute ago, this is a total disaster, didn't we? We just said this was worst case scenario. So what's different about my thinking and Paul's thinking? 
What's the difference? Here's the thing. What matters to Paul is not his own personal freedom. What matters to him is that the gospel has been set free like a bird from a cage and everyone is talking about it. What matters to him is not that our our church is free in one sense. Of course that matters to him. But what matters most to him is that the gospel is free. Jesus is being spoken about. You know, if his arrest has not served to advance justice or fairness or rightness, but what it has done is served to advance the gospel. And that makes his heart pound with joy. Because that's what matters. So what about us? Listen, I know this sounds melodramatic, but I really want to prepare you guys for a day that might come in your life where you have to make a big decision. Am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to lose my freedom? It might be that bad. It might be a lot less than that, a thousand times in smaller ways. But how do I know if my root is a deep root And if that day comes upon me, I'm ready to stand on Jesus. How am I going to cope on that dark day? Well, if in a thousand tiny ways, every day of your life, your normal way of thinking is that you decide that Jesus is more important than my personal freedom. And I do that in a tiny thousand different ways then when the big day comes, I will stand. If it's my normal pattern of thinking, Jesus is what matters and not my freedom, then I'll be ready on that great day, on that terrible day. Now, what does it mean that I choose Jesus over my freedom? Well, there's there's a lot of... I want you to apply this. I can't think of all the things in your life. But it might well be that in, in terms of our freedoms, we think of our rights, don't we? All the things I can do for me. We're a rights-centered culture. And and Paul would, would encourage us many times over, give up your rights, give up your freedoms so that you can serve Jesus. Now, there's loads of different ways you might do that. You might be giving up your time. You might be giving up your money. You might be, I don't know, people that spend their holidays going on camp serving Jesus rather than having me time. I don't know, it's, it's giving up me for the sake of others, because I'm serving him. Let me uh, bang a drum. Uh, I can do it in someone else's church and not in mine. Um, midweek groups. It's great that your midweek groups are starting up this week. One of the things that I find really frustrating about midweek groups, and maybe this is you because I've known it myself, um, is when you have a group and like half the people are just not there. Or a prayer meeting, you turn up. And why is there a quarter or a third of the church at the prayer meeting? but they're there on, on a Sunday. I, I just don't understand it. Because it, it's people who, I mean, maybe this is you, I, I don't know. Um, you've, you've got better things to do. Oh, I've, I, I need to be here in this office doing this, or I really need to be having some me time doing this, or I was tired, or da, da. And all of these things are an expression of, well, I need me. I've got to do me now. And a Christian is someone who's, who's killed me, who's put me to death and is now living to serve Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. And so what they rejoice in, as Paul does, is the name of Jesus and is serving Jesus and that his name would be known. 
And so I, I would want to encourage you, the reason you need to be here midweek, every week, is because this is Jesus. These are his body. These are his people. And if my heart burns because in a thousand little ways, every day of my life, I'm choosing him over me and, and his name over my freedom, then of course I'll be here. It's a no-brainer. I mean, there's a million, that's a, one of a billion different applications. How can I this year in 2017 choose to rejoice in the name of Jesus rather than having my own rights and my own freedoms? And if you make a habit of that, brother and sister, on the terrible day when it happens, you'll be stood up like that because your root will be way down there. Let's move on to the second point. How do we cope when our reputation is under threat? Now, I know one of the things that um, unifies CCMers, which we've all got in common, really, is that you're all pros. You're all professionals, right? Everyone here has either got a good job and one or two or three degrees, or you're in the midst of studying for a degree and you will be getting a decent job. You're all professional people. That's what brings you here, really, in one sense. And so actually, when you're a pro, when you're a, you've got a, a job and a career, and over the years, if you work hard and faithfully and you, you're successful and you do good for a company, you get rewarded. Of course you do. You get a better salary, you get promotions, you get status, you get honour. And those of you who have been working hard, some of you are like that. And well done to you, fair play to you, because that's what you should get. That's what you should get if you work hard. And some of you are at the beginning of that and thinking that's where I want to be. And if you work hard, you will be. And good on you. But the worst disaster, therefore, would it, would be if you, if you lost that having worked so hard for it for many years and decades, wouldn't it? I mean, for many of us, the one or one of the great achievements in your life is where you've got to, and rightly so. Imagine if that was stripped away. Imagine if you were in the midst of shame. Imagine if someone took your job away from you and barred you from your, uh, your profession and all your colleagues and your family and your friends derided you and looked down on you. That would be, that would be in the top 10 worst things that could happen to your life, wouldn't it? That would be appalling. Well, that's exactly what's happened to Paul. Paul is a Bible teacher. He's just a bloke like me, okay? He plants churches. He's planted lots of churches. People have become Christians. Loads of people really honour him. If Paul was a church planter in London today, he would be the top dog at most conferences. Of course he would. Because he's done so well over so many years. Faithfully teaching the Bible and, and faithfully living a godly life. He's earned honour and respect. There's a guy people look up to. But that's all been totally smashed up. Because he's in prison. He's facing potential execution here for being a hate preacher. I tell you what, that wouldn't do great for my career or Matt. Imagine ending up thrown into prison for being a hate person when it's totally unreasonable, totally unfair, and there's nothing you can do about it. So his, our total disaster, if we'd lost our reputation, well, he's got it, he's experiencing it. So this is the worst day of his life, right? Have a look at verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm here 
for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. This is such a brilliant bloke. <laughs> what a brilliant man. See, you've you got to understand that now here's Paul, the guy who's, a, who's lived his life with great integrity, is now in utter shame in a prison. And there are two types of Christians out there now preaching the gospel. There are those who do honour him and love him. And every time they hear a comment, oh yeah, Paul, he's one of them hate preachers, they'll say, actually, you don't know the guy, and actually he's a really good guy. And if you knew him and what he preached... He's a preacher, he preaches a message of love. Jesus is a man of love. And off you go, you're through evangelism. It's brilliant. But there are other people there who, well, now that Paul's in prison, their secret jealousy, they're, they didn't really like his mode of ministry or the way he does church. This is a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, Paul. Um, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's true. Yeah, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have said the things that he said in the way he said it. I think he's too sharp and abrasive. Uh, we don't do church that way. We're, um, we're more into love and, and acceptance and accepting all people in our church. He's much too angular. He has a very narrow view of the Bible. He's very binary. And we, we don't go for that kind of preaching in our kind of church. And great, they make themselves look good and look, look like wonderful liberals. And, um, and they put Paul down. Now, here's the thing about Paul. Paul's stuck in prison. He's got no recourse to defend himself. There's no defense lawyers. He's got no one on the press that he can phone up to, to get his side out. He can't phone up the, the, the chat shows. But in his radio, in his room, he listens to person after person, slag him off, falsely accuse him. And some of them are Christians. Some of them are people he used to do um, a, a ministry meetings with. He knows them from other churches. Oh yeah, that Paul, he's a, he's a bit of an angular bloke. We don't do that kind of thing at and the, the guy is stuck there in prison. Everyone totally slagging him off. He's got no way of defending himself. How outrageous, how unfair. This is appalling. But what does he say? Verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Now, if you lost your career unfairly just because you followed Jesus and you were barred from your profession, it would be the worst day of your life, but it's not the worst day of Paul's. Why is he thinking differently to us? Because what he cares about is not his reputation, but Jesus's. That's the answer. What matters is that Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. I just imagine the guy there in prison, everyone slagging him off. And in the same breath, they're talking about this Jesus. Is it hate or not? And you can imagine him listening to chat show, whatever it is, Radio London or whatever. Not, you know, every one of those comments would be a dagger in his heart. But because they're talking about Jesus, he thinks this is the best thing ever. I'm so glad I'm here. I don't care what they say about me. They're talking about Jesus. This is wonderful. Now, I want you to, again, imagine your own worst day. You're called up 
by the bosses in your company. You've got to come before them. You're making your way to this meeting where they're going to ask you to give account for a view you have. Maybe something you put on Facebook or something that you just said to someone whilst you're getting coffee at the coffee machine. And it's come up to the top and you know what it is. And you know you're going to basically have to say you're a Christian and you do stand on these views. That's what you've got to do. And you know they're going to fire you. And you know you may never get another job because your CV is totally ruined, totally smashed. And all those years, and the prospect of financial, what am I going to do for a job? How am I going to live? And as you walk into that meeting, you're thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to choose? Am I going to stand on Jesus? Or am I going to try and fudge my way out of this somehow in a different way? How are you going to cope on that day? Well, if in a thousand little ways, every day of your life, what makes your heart pound is that Jesus is honoured rather than that I am honoured. On that great day, you'll stand, no worries. But if what really gets your goat is when people say bad things about you, much, much more than what people say about Jesus, then you're going to struggle on that day. It's a lifetime of rejoicing when Jesus is spoken of uh, well rather than me. A thousand different ways. You know, when people mock us or belittle us because of our faith, um, just take it. You know, if um, in your whatever profession you're in, a lawyer, doctor, accountant, whatever you are, you know, every field has the potential for you being a lesser person in the office or in your workplace than others just because you're evangelical take that on or if you're if you're in the academic world you know people won't listen to you perhaps maybe your view is less credible if you're an evangelical yeah take that on stand on jesus there are two different ways this might go the active and the passive actively it might be that we take on insult and we don't we don't bite back we just we're not surprised by it because it's not strange. It's normal. But I think passively as well, I wonder if you're one of these Christians. I, I describe it as chameleon Christians. You know, a chameleon's one of those animals that blends into the background in whatever environment it's in. And some Christians blend so beautifully into the background that nobody really knows they're a Christian. You can get into that habit, whatever workplace or friendship group you've got. And so actually, the reason for that, I think deep down, it's because we're embarrassed and we don't want think, people to think badly of us. And if that's you, why don't you, in some bold way in 2017, step out from behind the shadows and let people know that you're a Christian. There's that awful moment, isn't there? Well, you go to church? I had some builders over recently and, um, you know, you've, you've had them in your house, you know, in your toilets and everything, you know, in all the privacy of your life for weeks. And then one of them goes, oh, what do you do then? And I say, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And they'll go, sorry, a, a what? A, I'm a, a pastor. I'm like a vicar for a church. Oh, right. Totally kills the conversation. <laughs> you can hear a pin drop. It's just that's what happens. That is it. Stand on Jesus. Don't be embarrassed because my reputation, it's not about me, but it is about him. Let's do the last one. We'll do it very quickly. We've gone on too long. Let's do the third one. How to cope when our life is under threat. Look, lots of verses in here. We won't do them in depth. 
I guess uh, I could easily make a case to you that you should uh, deny your freedom uh, for the sake of Christ, or you could maybe be down on your reputation for the reputation of Jesus. But if I were to say to you, um, your life, you might say to me at that point, okay, you're taking this too far. Well, I'd, you'd, you'd, I would encourage people to risk their lives to stand on Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. Have a look at verse, middle of verse 18. I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yeah, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, the term martyr these days is misused. Uh, martyrs in common parlance now is someone who straps a bomb to themselves and kills other people. But of course, the martyr originally meant someone who died for their faith, who was prepared to stand on their faith. And we follow a Lord who was a martyr and apostles who themselves were most all martyrs. Open Doors, uh, the organization that does the... Uh, the thing uh, about Christian persecution estimates that about 7,000 Christians were murdered for their faith in 2015. 7,000. Now, it, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that the majority of people here will never face a moment where you have to choose between Jesus and staying alive. But it might. And you need to know what you're going to say on that day. And you need to know if that root is deep. Paul is uh, thanking the Philippians in this reading I just read. Thanking them for their prayers. Because he expects it to turn out for his deliverance, verse 19. What does he mean by deliverance? Well, verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed, but have sufficient courage. So that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. What's he ashamed of? Why does he need courage? Well... He wants Christ to be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. It seems to me that Paul was waiting a trial in which death might be the result. If you stand against Caesar, you get your head cut off. You get executed. And so there's every reason to be ashamed and every reason to need courage. I'd be terrified and the temptation for me that the Satan would put on me is deny Jesus. All you have to do is say, yeah, I exaggerated. Sorry about that. Please let me go. But Paul says, thank you for praying for me because I expect to be delivered from being ashamed. I expect to be delivered so that I will have courage, whether by life or by death. Whatever happens, that I can go into that courtroom and be bold and say, I follow Jesus. Now that's pressure, isn't it? That's a day of trial. How are we supposed to cope when under such extraordinary pressure to decide between Christ and our life? Well, it's verse 21. 
Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that's one of the most mind-blowing phrases that anyone has ever written. For Paul, his life is lived for Christ. That's what he lives for. And if he dies, he gets to be with Christ, which is better by far. I find in our culture, people moan about life and are scared of death. Paul is, you know, loving life because he's living for Christ and cannot wait to die. Because he'll be with Christ, which is better by far. And so his life is not even a life for himself, it's for others. Because he's serving Christ with everything he has. You see, he sees his terrible predicament as a win-win situation. Now, I think the difference between him and us by instinct is that for us, our life is actually the most important thing that we have. It's the most precious thing we have. And at all costs, we have to preserve our life. But to Paul, the most important and precious thing he has is that he has Jesus Christ and eternal life in him. And you cannot take that away from him. I mean, he can give it up. He can be ashamed and deny Jesus. But you cannot take from him the fact that he has Christ and eternal life in him. Now, look, it's absurd for me. I feel very awkward preaching this kind of thing because I've never come anywhere close to having to uh, risk my life for being a Christian. Never. And, and, and Christians around the world do this every day. But how do I cope? How would we cope if that day came? Could you imagine it? Well, the way we would cope is that in a thousand little t- ways over every day of our life, if what matters to us is Christ rather than my life, then when I come to the day that I might have to lose it, I'll do it with joy as Paul will, as Paul did. How could we know if our root is deep enough that we wouldn't be ashamed and deny Christ? Because every day of my life, what makes my heart beat is living for Jesus and longing for his return. And if that's the way we live, then when that day comes, we'll stand. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're not sure and you're still thinking it through... Um, you're really, really welcome. It's brilliant you're here. I've probably totally put you off Christianity by now. <laughs> I don't know if that's you. Let me just say to you this. I'll tell you the thing about... Uh, let me look. Silly illustration. Um, imagine I said to you, uh, can I, do you mind if I punch you in the face really hard? You'd probably say, yeah, I do mind, actually. Don't do that. But now if I said to you this, um, look, would it be all right if I punched you in the face really, really hard? And gave you £20 million for doing so. You might stop and think and go, okay, I'll take the money. That'd be nice. Because, look, it's a stupid illustration. But you weigh up the the pros and the cons, don't you? The costs and the benefits. Imagine if you would have to lose your life or have Christ. That's what Paul was doing. Paul here is saying this is a no-brainer decision. Because I have something that's even more valuable than my very life. More valuable than my reputation and more valuable than my freedom. So I would say to you here, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you need to find out what this thing is that Paul has, that I have, that believers here have. 
Because I don't know anything in the world that anyone would say is more valuable than their reputation, their life and their freedom. Not a single thing. Apart from this. So you need to go to this honest questions or go to Christianity Explore and find out more about it. Because if you've got this, you've got the greatest thing there is. And the man Paul is testimony to that. Look, let me finish. The reason I wanted to preach this to you today is because I don't want persecution to be a strange thing that happens to foreign people. I don't want you to be surprised that it will happen to you, increasingly so, and especially if a big day happens to you. I want you to stand. I want your root to be deep. How will we cope? Two ways. Firstly, don't be surprised. Secondly, Make it your practice that every day of your life, if Jesus is the thing that that grabs your heart, that is most important to you, rather than me, on that great day of decision, you'll choose him and not me. Not my freedom, but his gospel. Not my reputation, but his wonderful name. Not even my life, because it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Why don't we take just a moment, you can pray whatever you like to the Lord. Our Lord Jesus, we pray these things, we cannot but pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who genuinely are in prison who genuinely have been totally shamed publicly and some of whom face the threat of their families or themselves dying. And we pray, Father God, that this word will be a strong word for them. Encourage them, we pray. And for us, Father God, we want to take on this language of persecution. For Jesus warned us, Paul warned us, Peter warned us that we shouldn't be surprised that this is not strange. This is what it is to follow you, Lord Jesus. So give us a backbone. And more than that, give us a heart, Lord Jesus, which genuinely sets you first, top dog, in every way. That at the name of your gospel, we delight. At the name of Jesus. And when people are speaking of him, it sets our soul ablaze with joy. That our lives might be lives living for you. And longing to be with you when we die. So that you would be our front, our centre, our all. Father, I really pray for those of us who maybe are going through a trial now. And for those of us who will face one in the, in the days to come. Nothing is beyond your grasp. All these things are your kind goodness to us, to train us. And yet, Father, please protect everyone here from Satan. Protect us from fear. Protect us from falling and strengthen us that we might be in him for the rest of our days, rejoicing in the name of Jesus rather than in the name of me. We ask this in his good name. Amen.